Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. Entry 911.PS9703, certificate number 52178. Peak Phosphorus. It was not the endless wars, a disaster, or plague which broke mankind's neck. It was the phosphate. Once 8 billion people relied on industrial agriculture, and this requires phosphate. No fertilizer, no crops. Before their extinction, food became very scarce, and the world descended into chaos. Peak Phosphorus, it's one of my favorite superhero comics. Pete Phosphorus. <laughs> He's like an old prospector. <laughs> what is Peak Phosphorus? We're going to go back out of town and climb Peak Phosphorus this weekend <laughs> with your Boy Scout troop? Do you remember a time when famine was considered one of the great disasters that was like imminent, ready to befall civilization at any time? Yeah, mid in America, mid-80s, right? The uh, the awareness brought to the Ethiopian famine by Live Aid and We Are the World and so forth. Although there were n- numerous famines in the years leading up to it. it the 80s is uh, when That's our pop fam- music. That's our famine. Pop musicians got involved. We waited till Lionel Richie got involved, and then we were very interested in <laughs> famines. But the, the whole thing of moms telling their kids to clean their plates because there are children starving... That's a post-World War II phenomenon, I think. There are kids starving in Armenia. There are kids starving in, it would just be whatever they saw on the cover of Life Magazine or National Geographic right. or something. Kids starving in uh, upstate New York, right? It's not clear how, how um, cleaning your plate helps them. Certainly they would be angry if they saw me eating food I wasn't hungry for. Well, I think part of it was an understanding that food wastage was right. an issue. Which we've discussed on the... Oh, it was uh, tortilla chips in Disneyland. Oh, that's right. Peak Phosphorus actually kind of touches on some of the tortilla chip issues, namely a lack of biodiversity. But we'll get there in a minute. Famines have always been a problem among human populations. And a lot of times throughout the centuries, connected to overpopulation or or rapid growth in population, the idea that there would be a... um, there would be a certain point in human population where the the earth could no longer support the growth. Yeah, once you, like at some point, I think kids in middle school or high school see kind of a Malthusian population curve and they realize that, wait, that's true. Food storage does grow arithmetically, whereas population 
could grow geometrically. Right. At some point, the math doesn't work out. That's a theory. It scares kids. Scared me. It is scary. And it was proposed by Thomas Malthus, as you just mentioned, the Malthusian theory. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It makes me sound like I'm, I'm enthusiastic. I think Malthusian I, is I'm it. a Malthusiast. I, uh, I enjoy his work. But he suggested this in 1798, so a long time ago, that population was controlled by kind of two methods. One was voluntary instances where you would hold off having children that were social population controls. And then involuntary population controls, which were the result of starvation, famine, right. And plague, I guess there, there are other things that could keep it down. Yeah. And that those were necessary correctives to the danger of overpopulation. And so the Malthusian theory is that, as you say, a population can grow exponentially, which we've seen it do in, Mm -hmm. in our own lifetimes, whereas food production can only grow linearly. And this was a theory that was really criticized in its time, and it was criticized by Marx and Engels. It's thought of as a theory that is counter to the idea that starvation and malnutrition are actually the result of artificial control on food supply rather than natural systems of population growth. You know, Western religions often have an emphasis on large families and anything that smacks of population control is not God's plan. Right. I mean, when when mass die-offs occur, it's because God has a message he wants to send. He hates dinosaurs so much. <laughs> right. I used to like them, and now they all have feathers. Or, you know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't like homosexuality, and that's why U.S. troops are dying in Iraq. Oh, I thought you were going to say that's why he killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> he did like, kill the dinosaurs because they were gay. Vaccines turned all the dinosaurs gay, and God had to kill them. So, yeah, the idea that population was part of a natural system and that nutrition and food supply was all part of a mechanistic universe was very much an Enlightenment notion, but it ventured into all these other Enlightenment arguments. And so it became a very controversial idea. But over the centuries, from the late uh, 18th century to the present, there have been several instances where it seemed like we were right up against the limit of the ability of the earth to provide food and nutrition for this rapidly expanding population. And are we just cheating Malthus to this day with technology? You know, new drought-resistant strains of rice in India, and suddenly we can feed a billion more people. Like, is that what's happened? So those things, genetically modified foods, drought-resistant grains, often dwarf grains, which were able to produce much more grain in a smaller plant that required less land and less irrigation. Those were a component of what we describe as the Green Revolution, which was this period after World War II, where a whole host of different technologies were applied to increase the yield of of arable land. And those were these genetically modified grains, which also were not biodiverse, right? They supplanted all the sort of naturally occurring grains with these dense food sources that weren't always the most delicious or the most nutritious. Also, an increase in the technology of irrigation. So eliminating the tremendous water waste that comes from earlier form of irrigation, ditch-based irrigation, 
and increasing the technology of drip irrigation and targeted irrigation. And I guess now the question becomes, you know, we've managed to use technology to grow food production exponentially. How sustainable is that? Well, and population has also grown exponentially this entire time. We have avoided the widespread famines, but a major component of this green revolution was also the use of industrial fertilizers. Ah, I wondered where you were going. Yes. So and now I know. Fertilizers were able to make your typical plot of farmland much more productive because you could insert all these chemicals that plants need to grow that are in the soil but are not always replenishable. And this is why the Dust Bowl resulted why why farmers traditionally would rotate crops on a piece of land. So you would grow some crops and then the following year you would grow grass and then just plow the grass back into the land, not harvest it to try and put some of that nitrogen, some of that phosphorus back in the Yeah, there's ground. certain there's certain crops you can grow that will actually fixate nitrogen in the soil. Right. Whereas the other crop would leach it out. And if you just sit and grow crops over and over in this plot of land, eventually you'll deplete all the nutrients in the soil. And that's what you, you know, you get a dust bowl where the ground just turns to, to dust and is blown away in a storm. And every time we've mentioned guano mining on the omnibus. It's people discovering that bird poop is rich in nitrates and phosphates and all kinds of nutrients like that. Right. So bird poop is brought in to chemically supplement fertilized soil. And what traditionally people did was spread manure over their soil. It was understood back to ancient times that if animal manure was put back in the soil, it helped the yield. It's funny to think about that getting discovered. It's not intuitive at all. No, but so if you So what's the case where somebody would be like, oh, you know, he poops more over here and that's where the- That's where that's the grass where grows. That's where it grows higher. And I think uh, there were, during periods, early agriculture, I mean, you had animal husbandry and you were growing crops kind of in the same sort of limited area. It'd be pretty easy to see where the grass was growing. Somebody was the first guy. Somebody was the Norman Borlaug of, <laughs> of 4th century BC Sumeria who was like, check it out, guys, poop. Well, and I think when you're raising a bunch of animals, you do have a poop problem, which is that manure. He was so excited. I just solved two problems. (laughs) We were shoveling this manure over (laughs) here, and look how good the grass grows. Let's shovel it over here. The thing about the nutrients that are necessary to grow plants, which are just basic nutrients that appear in the the atmosphere for the most part, uh, that are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, these are all elements that are in the atmosphere and go into the soil sometimes or into the plant from the air. From the air. And so nitrogen needs to get fixed into the soil in order to actually be nutritious to plants. Yeah, b- bacteria are going to make that conversion into new coke nitrogen or whatever the plants need. But there are a lot of other nutrients that plants need and, and not in such great profusion. But one of those nutrients is phosphorus which is necessary for the growing of roots. It appears naturally in the soil. It's an important component in plant growth. But unfortunately, the phosphorus cycle, unlike a lot of the cycles like oxygen and carbon, oxygen is a particularly fast cycle, right? You breathe it in, you... And my plant breathes it out. Your plant breathes it out, right? The, the ocean is constantly transforming hydrogen and oxygen, et cetera, et cetera. But phosphorus is one that has a very, very slow cycle. It occurs in our 
teeth and bones. Oh yeah, um, we we have trace elements of phosphorus in us, right? We do. It is a, a sedimentary rock, and it makes this transition through the Earth's crust and back through the soil in a process that is millennia long. So that when oh. phosphorus goes into the roots of a plant and is in its then in the plant and it's consumed by us and we excrete it, it's very easily like washed away by erosion. It's taken out into the ocean and then sinks to the floor of the ocean and basically just is... It just stays there. Plate tectonics eventually (laughs) crush it. Wow. And it goes back into the system. But it isn't... It's very water-soluble, but there's almost no gaseous version of phosphorus. So it's a thousand or million year cycle. So we hey, only did you know by the way that when phosphorus being excreted by the body is actually how it was discovered? Go on. Phosphorus, I think this is right. When it was discovered in the 1600s maybe, it was the first new element that had been discovered since antiquity. Oh really? Yeah, the Greeks and Romans had gold and silver and iron and uh, there were 12 elements and everyone was happy. Uh-huh. And then here comes unlucky 13, <laughs> some alchemist playing with his urine in 17th, in 17th century Germany. He's trying to make the philosopher's stone and so he's trying to isolate all these salts from his urine. And there's one that he cannot identify. And he quickly, he realizes there's a 13th element. A 13th element. No, the devil's (laughs) element, uh, which he names phosphorus, which is the Greek name for the planet Venus. Oh, right. The morning star. Like in the Bible where it says Lucifer, that's the Latin. That's that, that Lucifer and phosphorus mean the same thing. Well, and white phosphorus is a hot, a flash burning chemical. I think that's how he realized he had a new thing. He isolated the white phosphorus and realized this thing burns hot and bright. This is nothing I've ever seen before. Venusian. So he did not invent the philosopher's stone, but on the plus side, we got safety matches out of it. Well, the understanding that we needed phosphorus in fertilizer predates the discovery of phosphorus. Oh, that's interesting. And it is guano. So they knew something magic in bird poop. Yeah, that's right. De La Vega, like a Span- an early Spanish explorer, found that the Incas were using bird guano to fertilize their land. And so as it was, you know, as more and more explorers sort of found South America and traveled all the little islands in their archipelagos, they found that some of these islands were covered with bird guano to a depth of 30 meters. (laughs) And so mining guano as a fertilizer for European crops became a real cash business. And guano mining by the mid-1800s was an international precursor to oil drilling. Think about the Incas never inventing the wheel, but figuring out bird poop. Like they're doing complex organic chemistry for an element that wouldn't be discovered in Europe for centuries. That's right. There was an understanding, and I think it was after the discovery of phosphor that the connection was made between this magic guano and what it actually was doing. And People uh, thought there was a 14th element called bird poopium. Yeah. (laughs) And now they realized, oh, it's just phosphorus. Well, and realized also that like we don't, I mean, guano is rich in it, but cow poop has it you can, also. You can eliminate the middleman. I guess bird poop must be essentially concentrated, right? That's why guano was worth its weight in gold back then? Well, or? so th- there are a lot of ways that phosphor appears in our world. And the one kind is what's described as pristine phosphor, which is unprocessed phosphor that's that you can actually mine from hard rock. It's imbued in igneous rock or in... And there's some way to extract it and isolate it and... Yeah, you can crush it and because it's water-soluble, and I don't mean igneous rock, I mean uh, sedimentary rock. 
uh, you can crush it and then it becomes, you kind of mash it and it's water soluble. So you can extract it, you evaporate the water and what's left from this mash is uh, phosphor. Uh, so the other two ways that you can find phosphorus naturally is condensed, which is uh, how you would find it if it had been washed away, you know, uh, eroded and then collected kind of in like uh, the the shallow shoreline of a of a sea. You can be out panning for phosphorus if you're if you're peat phosphorus, the old sourdough. And then a lochthinous uh, phosphorus, which is condensed. A lochthinous phosphorus. A lochthinous phosphorus. What a wonderful phrase. So that's how you would, that's what, you know, for instance, guano would be or processed phosphor. It's also a rush song, I think. A lochthinous phosphorus. <laughs> uh, and that's through a process called uh, bioturbation, which is if an animal consumes a thing and then, uh, or, or I'm sorry, any kind of organic thing consumes a thing and then it's transferred or it's it's transformed by going through a living organism so like digestively or like in their remains when they die like in their skeleton both things oh okay so you know bioturbation if a plant uh uses phosphorus to grow and then is consumed by the animal the phosphorus is transferred through and then arrives in the waste and then what if we eat the animal, of course, there's phosphorus transferred to us, but it comes out in our poo and pee. I'm getting stressed out just having to imagine following these tiny, tiny trace amounts of phosphorus through a giant ecosystem of, you know, lava moving plates and intestines moving food and animal teeth. I don't even, I don't like, I, I, it's tr kind of stressing me out. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout well and it, it stresses i think a lot of people out because because of the fact that this process keeps basically just moving phosphorus from the land to the ocean. Uh, oh, yeah, there's, there's not yet a process that gets it back, It doesn't right? come back, right? It's not, it, you can't, I mean, you, there, there is some science being done to actually mine phosphorus out of ocean water, but there are so many other things that we, that we need to do with ocean water, like, for instance, mining water out of it, drinking water. Right. That, uh, that that's kind of fairly low, but... but and, I, and I've read, like, you know, the, I'm sure the trace amounts are so low. I mean, you can get gold from ocean water, too, but right. there's, you know, a molecule in every square foot of it or something. So the amount of energy you would need to extract it would dwarf the value of the gold by 100 times. Well, and that's a major problem in our phosphorus 
gap or our <laughs> phosphorus uh, uh, decline, which is the, the stress that you're feeling is a stress that, that has m- more recently been sort of brought to the fore by a kind of phosphorus panic, which was the recognition that phosphorus resources are a limited resource. They're, they only appear... We're not, we're not getting more phosphorus. No, the it, aliens are not dumping their poop on earth. It's not just, just, it's not widely distributed. It's actually distributed in, in fairly small concentrations globally. And in mining it, I mean, you, we are mining a resource that, that isn't replenishable. It's not a thing really we can make affordably. We have to extract it from the environment. And after the economic crash of 2008, there was suddenly a dramatic increase in the price of phosphorus. It, it increased over 800%. Well, surely the quantities did not go down proportionate to that. What, what's, why, what is leading to an 800% rise? Why did silver go from $50 an ounce to $1,500 So it's all ounce? visibility, right? You're just seeing some psychology in that? Suddenly no, there, enough people care? That- there, were, there were supply chain problems because phosphorus is, like a lot of precious metals, a thing that the price fluctuates just because it's a, because it's a market commodity. commodity. And if the price is low enough, mining phosphorus in various ways maybe isn't profitable. It's more profitable here where it's just on the surface. It's less profitable here where you need to really strip mine or dig down for Pro- it. Pros- phosphorus fracking. Right. It'd be <laughs> fracking with a pH. And so you get, uh, you get a situation where in 2008 you had a decrease in the production of it just as the economy tanked and there were supply chain problems and raw materials in general increased in price. Right. Um, but this spike in the price of phosphorus directed people's attention and, of course, theorists' attention to the fact that this was a, a limited resource and had become, because of the Green Revolution, an invaluable f- a source of fertilizer. The, the Like kind of the linchpin of keeping... Three billion Asians fed, for example, right? Right. So, so the Green Revolution had a tremendous effect on the the productivity of crops in China and in India, where the where massive populations were. I mean, where the population was actually increasing exponentially. But it also transformed northern Mexico into a a verdant garden where. Prior, it had been very difficult to grow enough food there to sustain the population. And this was more irrigation or more GMOs, both? Uh, All of the above, like better fertilization. Uh, I mean, we talked about this quite a bit in the the article about, or I'm sorry, in the omnibus entry about the water wars of Southern California. A lot of the stress put on the water there is because it's being used in, uh, to irrigate land that that formerly was just salt pan or desert. And making super water inefficient crops to give us more almonds or whatever. Right. And as those processes become more and more streamlined, they're used just to increase the amount of land that's that's being used. So any savings that we have in terms of better processes, right, or efficiencies, we spend that uh, surplus. Cool, extra water. Let's let's plant another orchard. Let's let's turn more desert into garden. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's true globally and in a kind of like flip of the Malthusian principle, right? As we increase the yield of crops, it 
takes the pressure off population growth. So a lot of the sort of proto, or I'm sorry, a lot of the like post-Malthusian Malthusians are saying, we're just headed to a bigger fall. We've put off the, uh, we've put off the famine that seemed like it was looming in 1975. I do see a lot of told you so um, kind of rhetoric around Malthusianism with people being like, look, look, it didn't run out. And every time I see that, I think, but his math was right, I think. I mean, maybe, you know, we're just forestalling it, right? Is there a finite amount of the Earth's land that, and a finite amount of productivity that we can derive from that land? It's like the, it's like the discussion about urban planning where people just want to see more lanes on the freeway because then traffic will go down. And no, as soon as you create this new available good to everyone, the lanes fill up because people want to drive their cars more. So as soon as people have the sense that society can support more babies, they will have those babies. Right. As soon as there's more irrigation for more crops, they will just try to grow and sell more crops. It's, well, and what's weird about some of stuff's these... Stuff's always going to be a capacity. It, well, and, and, and we're finding, I think, that the, that the dwarf grains that represented a big part of this increase in production uh, don't have the diverse nutrition that, oh. you know, then you see this in natural food stores all the time. Like, oh, these ancient grains have all this nutrition that is missing from white rice, for instance. But what we're seeing is fewer people dying of um, famine, but greater instances of malnutrition and actually kids dying of of, I mean, they have like all the crap rice they can eat, but they don't but have... they don't have the vitamins. They don't have the vitamins, right? Mm. So what also happened as a component of the Green Revolution and the, and the dependence on artificial chemicals, and, and in particular phosphorus, was that we stopped using traditional farming techniques. We stopped using... Manure? Manure. And a lot of the phosphorus was being condensed and collected in human beings, in human waste, which was being flushed out in, flushed into our chemical treatment plants. Now you're telling me I'm wasting phosphorus about once a day around 11 o'clock in the morning? Well, this has been, a, this was one of the uh, reactions to this idea that we had, a, uh, after this 2008 sort of price panic, that we were arriving at peak phosphorus, which was a, a, a name kind of taken from the idea of peak oil, that we had reached the apogee of our, my, of, of our reserves of phosphorus. And now it's a limiting factor on everything else we do and grow. And as phosphorus production declines, but population continues to increase and we continue to try and exploit greater and greater amount of land for, for farm production, we're going to arrive at a place where where the land can no longer support what we're asking it to do. Wow, now I am stressed. So does this explain that door in your basement with the sign that says, this is not John's phosphorus, do not enter? <laughs> Are you hoarding phosphorus? I do, I do. It's just, I, I just go poop in a bucket and then dump it in a <laughs> corner of the garage. We need some new Bill Gates, next generation science toilet that strains out the phosphorus in your waste on its way out. Well, funny you should mention it. That's what I want. As a as a response to this peak phosphorus notion, which was, which was advanced by a, a whole lot of fairly credible scientists, including and, people at MIT. And just as a parenthetical, did this turn into the cold fusion thing where it kind of 
uh, trickled down into pop science and freaked out a lot of people with less accuracy than should have. It coincided with the rise of internet panic buttons. And internet pop science headlines. Yeah, and a lot of think pieces about it. But actually, real scientists started to work on toilets that recycled urine and, or I guess, yeah, urine and, and feces and to extract the phosphor out of it. And at large scale, uh, to try and extract phosphor out of human waste at, at municipal levels. That probably makes more sense. I mean, in, a, in the developing world, you probably want some kind of toilet level solution that you can then take the solution, you know, then immediately turn it into something for the rice paddy. Right. But in the West, yeah, it makes more sense to do it at a treatment plant. Well, if you look at the Green Revolution as it's matured, um, in the United States, there have also been improvements in a, a great number of just sort of be best practices in farming, uh, which have resulted, because another component of the Green Revolution, of course, was insecticide, which we... It's kind of backfired. Yeah, which we used to kill all the insects that, that ate the grains, but but it, you know, it poisoned the air and water. Well, it also turns out that, um, I mean, we're starting to see insect population die-offs that are troubling since that's foundational to the ecosystem. Well, and, and one of the big scares uh, of monoculture, agriculture, was that all it took was one disease that wiped out whatever that particular dwarf grain was. And then you get the interstellar future where we can only grow corn. We had corn and turnips, but the last turnips <laughs> just died to turnip blight. It's corn now. Uh, but the United States has gradually, the, the farming industry here has recognized these problems and has adjusted its practices. There's a lot more organic farming now. There's a lot better use of water, micro uh, irrigation rather than trough irrigation. And we actually have declined in our use of chemical fertilizers. We, we have, uh, you know, the use of those, those products and all these, um, these mass farming techniques are, are actually in decline in the United States. But every time I see a story like this, it becomes, but they've all but, risen 10,000 fold in China. Is, right. that, is that how this ends? Yes. Oh, okay. and, and China and <laughs> India now are, are, uh, in a lot of places, on the upslope of the green revolution and they're beginning to uh, implement these practices widespread. Um, and China has, so the United States was the main producer of phosphorus from the introduction of it as an idea uh, from 1900 to just recently. Yes. Did you, that's the basis of my patriotism. Is our phosphorus. Is our phosphorus uh, dominance. Like a dominance. lot of people probably love the you know, checks and balances sure. or the constitutional guarantees on freedom. Not for me. For me, right. it was always about the phosphorus. The ability to To control the world's phosphorus. And we can turn off that phosphorosit mm. if, we, if we need to. We used to be able to, but we no longer can. We don't uh, have a hand on the phosphorosit? No, the, the, the Chinese are now outproducing us. Um, there are phosphorus, there are recognized phosphorus resources globally. And... Um, some of the some of the fear. So during peak phosphor, uh, during the 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 big the heyday of this notion, which was right after the financial crisis, 2008, 2008, 2009. So a scare about a decade ago that lasted a few years. During that scare, it was estimated that our phosphorus re reserves were, uh, and by reserves, it was meant rather the exploitable resources of phosphorus around the world 
was a known amount and it was um, enough to keep us only in phosphorus for the, I mean, the worst, the worst number you heard was 30 years. Some people were saying 60 years. This is like Jack D. Ripper stuff in Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. I, Mandrake, I do <laughs> love women, but I deny them my phosphorus. And this was based on the, on, uh, the notion that surveying the world's phosphorus re- uh, reserves, uh, we had about 65 billion tons of phosphorus that was exploitable. And we were using it at a at a rate of 260 million tons a year. So do the math. Well, if you do the math, there's still about 260 years worth of phosphorus. So it's unclear oh. where the scare of only 30 <laughs> years or 60 years. I mean, it almost seems like somebody forgot a zero. That, that does happen in academic work, right? And it seemed like as it went, as it uh, dispersed into the the popular culture, that the, the it got more and more we've dangerous. Talked, we've talked about that game of telephone before. Somebody says 100 years and somebody else says decades and suddenly in the telegraph, it's 30 years. Right, 30 years. But there was a, there was a misunderstanding or rather a, um, a failure to appreciate the difference between phosphorus reserves and the Earth's available phosphorus resources. Explain the difference to me. A phosphorus newbie. So this is true in a lot of natural resources and including oil, which is that the reserves are the sort of quantity of that resource that we have identified, located, determined is extractable and extractable at, at a profit. I see. Right. So according to the current economy. Right. So if you look at, um, if you look at a time when oil shale which until very recently was, I mean, we knew that there were uh, millions and millions of barrels of oil held within oil shale. Tantalizingly out of reach, not part of the reserve, right? It wasn't part of the reserves at the time because it wasn't extractable at a profit. Mm -hmm. And so why would you go... Why would you go find it if you couldn't make any money off of it? Just love of oil, I guess, for a, as just a hobby. For that love of oil. I'm just going to sink a lot of money in this unprofitable oil sale. But as the price of oil went up, all of a sudden you found that uh, that those resources, resources were grow. And so resources being different from reserves. Resources are the hard ceiling. That's how much is out there ever. It's resources is actually only the amount that we know is there. It's not necessarily exploitable, and our and our phosphorus resources are something on the order of three hundred billion tons of phosphorus that we know is there that we can see and call phosphorus, but that just isn't really uh, gettable yet. And crazily, the vast majority of the world's phosphorus resources are in the country of Morocco. <laughs> really, if you look at a pie chart of all of the phosphorus in the world. There are the king of Morocco is sitting on top of it, rubbing his hands. He is. There are there are tiny slivers for you know for three dozen nations. Two percent of the world's phosphorus is in the United States. Three percent of it is in China. Two percent is in Syria, uh, and then there you know one percent of the world's phosphorus is kind of spread around, and then seventy percent of the world's phosphorus is Morocco. What accident of you know prehistoric geology? I mean, Morocco used to be next to, I don't even know what, Mexico or Guyana or yeah, something. would have been, yeah, I sure, guess Brazil. Gulf right? of Mexico, I guess? Or No, yeah, right. Oh, no, I, what would it have been? Yeah, okay, you're right. Like Florida. So, so how come, yeah. So, well, so how no, come 
Fort Lauderdale doesn't have the other half of that. Maybe not coincidentally, the, the majority of phosphorus mined in America is from Florida. Oh, interesting. So... So, so that might have that's been the edge of whatever Morocco got, and the rest all was all lost in the sea. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, Morocco when Numenor sank. Morocco right now is not uh, is not exploiting these resources to the degree that they could. But when we think of the difference between uh, resources and reserves, uh, there's an awful lot of unexploited phosphorus in Morocco. So we're speaking to a future world that's probably governed from the phosphorus mines of, uh, <laughs> the phosphorus <laughs> halls of Morocco, right? That now controls the world economy. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Well, all of this is based on uh, a theory of the Earth's sort of a uh, theory of Earth continuity called the planetary boundaries, which are... Um, Kind of, which is a, a notion of the biosphere as containing or as, as being comprised of these different sort of systems. So we have the diversity of biology, genetic diversity, climate change is a component of it, ozone, there's ocean acidification, there's nitrogen and phosphorus uh, in the oceans and, you know, like misplaced or depleted Mm -hmm. Uh, there's fresh water and whether or not fresh water will be, uh, accessible to people where they live. All these systems kind of work in concert with one another. And this sort of, I mean, nitrogen is its own set of problems. And it really, uh, like nitrogen in runoff is what produces these enormous algal blooms in the yes. ocean. It's not just that we need it. It's also the ocean really doesn't need it. Right. Doesn't need it in the profusion that we're distributing it there. And actually phosphorus creates algal blooms as well, but in freshwater rather than in saltwater. Weird and, kind of freaky phosphorus loving algae. The, yeah. Those, free, those sick freaks. So what we have discovered is that this was an internet-based science-adjacent panic that happened a few years ago, but that persists if you, I mean, if you were to Google phosphorus right now, peak phosphorus would be in the, in your top three, um, returns. Is it kind of layperson hand-wringing, uh, conspiracy theory, or is it more long-term eco-thinking that is relevant or like, sh should we be worrying about peak phosphorus or not? What's happening is that the, the global agriculture system is, is continuing to evolve. 
the way that we exploit materials is always in flux. We're not, we have not arrived at the end of agricultural technology. Hopefully. I mean, although we still have 36 million people a year die of malnutrition globally, it is, we're not at present at risk of not being able to feed the people of the world. Strangely, the Green Revolution did not ever succeed or take hold in Africa to the degree that it did elsewhere. And that is attributed to a lot of different factors, including government corruption and... um, I understand in the 80s, you know, even then you were hearing contrarians say, actually, there's enough food in Africa. It's just not getting to the people you see on TV. Right. Uh, For governmental reasons. But also to institute a green revolution somewhere requires a lot of government infrastructure construction and maintenance. And there's a lot of last mile problems getting stuff to the little villages. So when it happened in India, it was in the 1960s, it was a response to a looming threat of famine and the, the United States and the sort of green revolution uh, countries went with the Indian government and partnered to introduce these new technologies, but it required a real a real concentrated push. And are we seeing relu- reluctance from the West to do that kind of investment in Africa? Like in India, we might get our money back. No, it's happened a lot of times in Africa, but it has not, I mean, attempts have been made. It just, and there are a lot of questions about what exact systems have prevented it from taking hold there. It's been a success in Guinea, but in most of the, the African countries, it hasn't Succeeded, and there nice is... Nice job, Guinea. Like, yeah. they, they so rarely get a shout-out in, in any podcast, really. Not just, not, just, not just this one, but like, like Mark Maron never talks about them. This is good news <laughs> for them. Another issue in the need for phosphorus, of course, is that meat consumption has grown, yeah. and meat requires about 50 times more phosphorus. And this is our vegetables. fault for convincing Asia that Big Macs are delicious. Right. A thing that's patently not true. They like, are not. Well, yeah. no, they're actually pretty delicious. Big Macs? The, not Big Macs, but <laughs> McDonald's cheeseburgers. The other day I was in Park Slope. I was walking along. It was a hot day, and I suddenly got a craving for a McDonald's cheeseburger. I hadn't had one in two years. And I was like, a cheeseburger. And I walked over, it was over in Flatbush, there was a McDonald's, I walked in, I was like, I'm getting a cheeseburger, I don't care what anybody says, I don't care if it causes heart disease. And I walked in and the Are you pregnant? Was, like, this is just... It was something, yeah, I needed ice cream and pickles. <laughs> uh, and I got inside and it was so crowded, and they have a new system at McDonald's where you order... You order yourself. You order yourself from a screen? The better to put people out of work. <laughs> and I was like, no, I cannot. And it, my desire for a cheeseburger did not uh, overwhelm your love of American labor. I was not going to participate in this weird, <laughs> this weird new system, so I got out of there. Yeah, my dad, uh, w- when we lived in Korea in the 80s, was writing a lot of the joint agreements that got all the fast food companies into East Asia. And, you know, he changed the, nutri- you know, not hit single-handedly, but that movement changed the nutritional uh, outcomes of a whole generation of, of newly affluent Asians. And... Uh, People are a lot taller now, yeah. but they're also starting to get more obese. They have rickets. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're using all this beef, which is terrible for the, you know, carbon footprint of the planet. In 1999, I was uh, in Romania and they opened, I was in, I stayed for a few weeks in the town Arad and they had opened a McDonald's in downtown, in the center of Arad there, right kind of on the town square. Do you remember that post-Cold War boom of now there's a... 
Now there's a McDonald's in Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Now there's one in Albania. It felt so fun. But this this McDonald's was absolutely the hotspot. And part of the reason was it had brighter lights than any other building in Arad. And there were all the cool cars were parked out front. Teens were hanging around. And I talked to my friends there. and was like, wow, this place is booming. And they said, most of those people aren't actually eating there because they can't afford it. They just want to be seen and be seen. Yeah, this is like a, this is a premium place. And, you know, to buy a cheeseburger represents like a week's salary. So they're not doing it. I don't know how long that lasted, but yeah, it was absolutely, it was like Levi's. Uh You know, people would just hang out at these new McDonald's in the 90s. Probably not true anymore. But peak phosphorus is an example, I think, of a couple of things. And one of them is a misunderstanding of how of how these sort of processes all interact with one another. The green revolution is ongoing. It is improving over time and we can see it, you know, we can see the improvements that are happening in the United States, the new efficiencies, the new models, and we can see those gradually uh, being applied in other places. This is true. I think also of pollution and fuel economy. I mean, uh, India and China account for, a growth in automobiles and beef consumption. But as America and the Western countries that, that premiered these problems. Yeah. Just to be clear, we cannot be dicks about this. <laughs> no, like, no. They, like they can, they finally have the stuff that we were, uh, you know, overusing all this time. And they, we just used to be the only ones who could afford it. But really this happened in, in recent memory, this happened in living memory and, and really in living memory of you and I, um, that we went from, really gross inefficiencies to new efficiencies. And so there's no reason to think that that process won't happen just as quickly in other countries as it's being sort of pioneered. That's the hope. That's the hope. Um, Just because those efficiencies are more profitable. I mean, here we are uh, end stage capitalism, but capitalism still seems to be digesting. Okay, we're into solar now. <laughs> sure. Right. It, the capitalism continues to digest the phosphorus of, of <laughs> all the world. Uh, but also it's a, it's a, an example of a kind of not hysteria exactly, but a few things conspired an, a, a growing awareness of the importance of phosphorus in the food chain, a brief tremendous spike in its price followed by now phosphorus, which, you know, it used to just be a constant dollar a ton or whatever. And now it's a a market. It's a market. And so the price fluctuates. It's, it's bouncing along. And every time it goes up, it sort of increases the stress, but it also makes formerly defunct mines now profitable again. Makes the King of Morocco, his eyes gleam as he looks at the International Herald Tribune. Uh, and, a, and a kind of fundamental inclination, I guess, that we have now to look, and I mean, we have now, this goes back to the dawn of time, the idea that you are always looking for doomsday scenarios and each new one seems plausible in ways that the, that the past one did not. Mm-hmm. So we no longer worry about a hole in the ozone layer, but we do worry about the global phosphorus crisis that's looming or rare earths or whatever it is that we seem to that our current technology seems to desperately need that we're at great risk of losing forever. I stay away from the niche ones because you sound like a crazy person. The second you say, 
yeah, but what about bauxite or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. Are, do you guys know about molybdenum? Because here's the thing. We're like, running out of rare earth. How like, are your headphones going to work? <laughs> like we're now the, what if we turn into like the two white guys, like, you know, like we just said the word phosphorus, like. 300 times. This that's is, right. this is straight up turning into some Alex Jones show <laughs> where it's like, and that's why you need to invest in Ken and John's phosphorus 24 hour kit or whatever. <laughs> like let the phosphorus conspiracies begin. And that concludes peak phosphorus. Entry 911.PS9703, certificate number 52178 in the omnibus. Did you notice it was entry number 911? There's your there's your phosphorus whoop, conspiracy whoop, theory. Whoop. How hot does phosphorus burn again? 911 degrees. <laughs> this all this all comes together. And this is the 911th year <laughs> since the birth of Joe Phosphor. Futurelings, we come from an age in which there is a, possibly a shortage of phosphorus or not, but there's certainly an overabundance of one resource and that is content. Futurelings may be 80% phosphorus. I thought you were going to say 80% content. <laughs> I'm 80% content. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I hope you guys have found out ways to fixate phosphorus in your tentacles or pseudopods. We are fixated on it. We would like you to fixate <laughs> it. In our day, in our content-rich era, we were fracking content out of areas in which it was previously unprofitable. For example, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. John was at John Roderick in these flush days. I was at Ken Jennings jointly. Uh, this uh, endeavor was at Omnibus Project. We stayed away from Facebook, the dicey new GeoCity slum of the internet. Except, except with one exception, you thought I wasn't going to do the turn. Oh, thank goodness. Do John, the turn. John is worried that I'm besmirching <laughs> our beloved Futurelings fan group. Please go there to discuss today's entry, your own personal phosphorus theories or whatever John said about the Welsh, the South, yeah. the Jews, the Etruscans, whoever, whoever we besmirched. I'm pretty mad at the Etruscans. Because they're hoarding all the phosphorus. Oh, it's going to be the Moroccans. You're going to hear from the Moroccans. That's right. Stop giving away our edge. Ixnay on the phosphorus fay. <laughs> you can send us physical items. Like I had to move my uh, triple extra large Arizona State t-shirt that I received in the mail to look at our other fine recent mailbag items that were sent to us. Look at this, a guide to the Australian National Aviation Museum. Oh, how nice. You do one podcast about Australian aviation and suddenly people, like somebody spent seven and a half Australian dollars. Wow, that's almost two American dollars. <laughs> to send this to us. And this is, this is lovely. Look at the fine holdings of the Australian National Aviation Museum. I hope to go there one day. Are you wondering, John, are you wondering if they have a Bristol Bowfighter A328? No, I figured that they did. What I was wondering is, I was wondering whether there were two tickets on Qantas <laughs> to fly us to Australia. They must have fallen out en route. Uh, whoever sent us this, please, the tickets were not included, the plane tickets were not included. That's oh, just a Ken Jennings that? baseball card. Yeah. Oh, this one's even better. This one, this one, uh, this person printed, uh, Piers printed on his own a beautifully designed kind of pamphlet-sized uh, version of Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, The Author of the Acacia Seeds. Oh, how nice. Which is about ants uh, talking to their acacia seeds in pheromone form. Talking with their pheromones. 
Yes. So I, I feel like this has some connection to future listeners who are probably using pheromones to, to listen to this right now. Yeah. Sentient acacia seeds who are like, the ants will not shut up. In the future, they know how this outro smells. <laughs> they can... They're sitting in their, in their little pods thinking of the ants as we think of the birds in the morning. Like, enough. Imagine if, like, there is a slightly different smell, pheromonally smell, to an outro that goes on too long, hmm. or a pun that is ill-advised, or a Schoolhouse Rock reference that I miss. Like, they're, they're smelling all these things. I definitely hold my nose to some of your puns. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're, you're already doing pheromones. Well, thank you, Piers, for sending your uh, Ursula K. Le Guin pamphlet. I don't know if, if you did these illustrations yourself. They're beautiful. Oh, you did. Look, these are lovely. Oh. Here, John. You have it over there. Our, our table is too long for John to enjoy the answer. Anyhow, if you have produced uh, well, look at those. your own illustrations to Ursula K. Le Guin works or work at an Australian aviation museum, um, we are deeply interested in all these things. Please send them to us at uh, Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. It's, if it's a digital resource, you can save at least seven and a half Australian dollars by posting those to our attention at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived before withering on the vine for lack of nitrogen and phosphorus. We hope and pray that that catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. If the worst comes soon, it will not be from a dearth of phosphorus. Surely we're not going to run out of phosphorus tonight. No. Somebody has looked in the bin and sees that we have at least a few more weeks. You know, I went on a tour of our local liquid waste, or rather water treatment plant, uh, not very long ago. And, you know, they process all of the dirty water that they get from our toilets and showers. And in the process of processing it, uh, they end up with a very, very rich, black, crumbly sediment, which has been purified and and all the scum is scraped off of it and all the cigarette butts and condoms that you know, people flush down their toilets. Do you think it's, do you think that stuff just has a wholesome topsoil-like smell or do you think that stuff has the worst smell? It's, I have smelled it because it's right there and it does not smell great. Um, it is not that far removed from being poop. That it smells like are any of us that far soil? removed That's from right. being I'm like I'm like th- only four hours away at this point. The guys there at the at the waste treatment plant say that that stuff, that material that's been processed largely by bugs. You know that it's an organic yeah. uh, treatment plant. They use bugs and snails and whatnot to to gobble up the the bad stuff, and then they of course excrete it. All that material is then salvaged and sold to the farmers of Eastern Washington at market rates. And the farmers of Eastern Washington are in competition with each other to buy the human waste byproducts of Seattle. No wonder there's such a class war in this country. These angry, angry people are literally competing for our poop. (laughs) And they just have to... They're literally eating our poop, and they they know that's what their economy is based on. Well, they're growing the food that we eat, so we, we are eating, eating our, our own poop as it makes its way through the food chain. So I think for a while that processing produced this material, and the and Seattle would give it away because 
because we had all this great fertilizer and we were like, get this out of here. And then we realized, oh, wow, this is, this would be. Let's have a poop auction. This is expensive stuff. Let's make Wenatchee and Yakima fight over it. So we're doing a good job of processing the phosphorus that we're cycling through and keeping it out of the rivers, sending it back to. to uh, I'm going to go do my part just as soon as you, as you finish this uh, outro, John. <laughs> like, I'm going to go help out. Uh, if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.